Hey everyone, what's up and welcome to Front Run, where we predict the future of money and technology. I'm your host, John Cook. It's the fourth week of April 2023, and we have a banger out of agenda this week. We are going to cover the broader equities and crypto market. Lots of lots of themes, lots of narratives. A lot of it's noise that you can't really control, so we're going to dive into all of it in the next hour or so, f- focusing specifically on this agenda related to like the debasement of the US dollar and fiat currency in general. If you're following like crypto Twitter or some of the thought leaders in in this like DeFi space, you have no doubt seen that there's this growing narrative related to like uh, hyperinflation of the US dollar, take all of your money out of fiat currency, put it in Bitcoin or fill in the crypto asset blank, right? I don't think that's true, and we're going to cover all of it today and try to dive into like why that is not true, given uh, the U.S. dollar's dominance in uh, foreign exchange and global debt. We're also going to cover some of the trending topics in crypto with respect to Gensler getting grilled. Again, large misdirection. I think it's just it's the wrong topic to focus on. Uh, given that there's so much building happening in the crypto space right now, specifically in the layer two Arbitrum ecosystem, even in like the ZK Sync and all of these like other emerging L2s and L3s, focusing on like SEC regulatory oversight with Gensler and like what the GOP is grilling uh, the SEC on is it's such a waste of time. So we'll dive briefly into that and kind of expose some of the false narratives that are going through that. And last but not least, lots of news in the housing market. We're going to cover some of the broader movement within the domestic housing market in the United States. What's happening to inventory, what's happening to prices. So you can kind of get a feel for the broader housing ecosystem and the reason i cover all of these topics is equities crypto and even housing they're all kind of interconnected perhaps crypto moves at a faster pace than equities and housing but they all represent like broader sentiment of um, economic strength buying patterns are people putting all their money in u.s treasuries are they actually going out and entertaining risk on assets like DeFi, putting their money into private REITs, so on and so forth. It, it's all interconnected. So we're going to spend some time going through all of all of these topics in the next hour or so. So lots of details. Let's dive into it now. We're going to start with uh, an article that was written by the Macro Alf. Uh, he has a subset called The Macro Compass. I think everybody should, should subscribe to it. And he writes about this concept called the de-dollarization fairy tale. And it's off the back of this hyperinflation of the U.S. dollar that we've been talking about. And again, hyperinflation of U.S. dollar is when the buying power of one dollar goes down. So consider like a loaf of bread might cost, I don't know, two dollars today. Hyperinflation means that that loaf of bread might cost a hundred dollars tomorrow. And if that happens, the people will for sure riot. So will that happen? And what is the framework through which we can think about hyperinflation and the debasement of the U.S. dollar? And is any of this really true? And here's my answer, and it aligns with the macro elf, and it's generally speaking, no. The reason that we will not see U.S. dollar hyperinflation slash debasement of fiat currency, at least for the U.S. dollar, is because two things. 
foreign exchange transactions and US dollar denominated global debt. So foreign exchange transactions, uh, currently 80% of all foreign exchange transactions is denominated in US dollars. So like, what, what does that actually mean? So if I want to buy soybeans from Brazil, for example, uh, I will purchase soybeans from Brazil denominated in US dollars and I will get soybeans in return. Brazil will get US dollars, right? So if you think about the global ecosystem of raw materials, goods, finished products, etc. What is that denominated in? It's for sure denominated in US dollars. And for those following along on the, on the uh, YouTube, we can see that according to uh, Macarel via BIS, the US dollar accounts for the lion's share of global trade and payments, foreign exchange transaction volume, approximately 80%, international debt securities, 50%, cross-border loans, approximately 50%. So why does that matter? Why does that matter? It's, it's, it's important because when Brazil exports commodities, for example, in US dollar, more than it spends in US dollar to import stuff from the outside, uh, according to MacroAlf, the country accumulates US dollar foreign exchange reserves, right? So if you're a net exporter of raw materials, products, agriculture, so on and so forth, you sell your commodities to global traders and you receive US dollars in return. This is called the accumulation of US foreign exchange reserves, right? All of this US dollar eventually enters uh, what we call the domestic banking systems. And when you think about central banks, right, these are the entities that control monetary policy for these sovereign nations. These local central banks, and again, we're using Brazil as an example, is responsible for managing that foreign exchange reserve budget, right? That means they have to keep the US dollars liquid and safe. So what do they do? How do they do that? They put it in US treasuries, right? So if I am the foreign exchange, if I am, for example, responsible for the local central bank of Brazil, and I have billions of dollars in US denominated dollars, I will buy US treasuries, right? $20 trillion in US treasuries floating floating across the globe right right now right and this is free market capitalism there's no capital controls there's no invisible hand of like some central planning committee controlling uh u.s treasury markets it's pure supply and demand right so what i find interesting about uh the macro alf in his thought process related to this fairy tale related uh, fairy tale about US dollar debasement is that there's an ample supply of US treasuries, right? These are deficits domestically that provide globally the rest of the world what they need. A safe and liquid asset where to recycle the US dollar proceeds from their global treasuries, right? So although it is acknowledged that US treasuries um, have been declining over the past 30 years, US treasuries still account for approximately 60% of the global foreign exchange reserves 
as of end of year 2022, right? So you might say, that's fine, John, but what about Japan? What about Europe? What about China? What about Russia? What about Brazil, right? Can't we just use their local currencies and exchange good and goods and services through that? And the answer is not really because they don't have, if we take Europe as an example, they don't have like a robust monetary system as the United States. And you might say, what the hell does that even mean, a robust monetary system? One really easy way to measure this is to um, quantify the soundness of these monetary planning committees, right? And you can look at like S uh, standard and poor bond ratings. I'm pulling this up as an example, right? The US dollar, US government is rated AAA. Not many European countries are rated AAA, right? Maybe German, German bonds, right? Look what's happening in France right now. Moreover, if you look at China, Brazil, Russia, China has this concept called capital control. So this is where like the the Chinese currency is controlled by a central planning committee, right? Russia, lack of democracy, rule of law. Brazil, lots of corruption, double-digit inflation. Do you really want to put your reserve currency, the health and safety of your financial system, in China, Russia, Brazil, given their central planning, capital control system, general uncertainty with respect to rule of law, growing double-digit inflation? The answer is no, right? That leaves only one, one option, and that is U.S. Treasury. Now, what's really interesting is like MacRealth goes on to talk about uh, this other angle with respect to US dollar dominance, and that's debt, right? So again, we established that foreign exchange trade, it's denominated in US dollars around 20 trillion, there's no path to unwinding that. But what about US dollar denominated debt across the globe? This is this is what I found quite interesting, I'm going to pull this up for everyone to look, it's the amount of US debt issued by entities outside of the United States, right? $12 trillion. There's $12 trillion of US debt that's circulating outside of uh, outside of the United States, right? What what I find like compelling about this is if we were to de-dollarize the global ecosystem, you would need to deleverage $12 trillion of debt, right? How are you going to sell $12 trillion of debt? To quote the Mecco Elf, Brazil walking away from uh, from U.S. dollar-denominated trades would hamper its organic inflows of U.S. dollars, and Brazilian corporates would be choked under U.S. scarcity as they would need to repay and refinance their U.S. debt. In what? In what? Right. So when you deleverage a when you deleverage a debt-based system, you are either bidding up the debt denominator, which is the U.S. dollar, or you're going to enter like a World War Three, right? So this is why this idea from like people like Balaji that we're going to somehow uh, walk away from the U.S. dollar as the global the global reserve of choice. 
I don't see it happening. And uh, to summarize the macro alpha, you can read this more in detail. The reason I don't see it happening is for uh, number one, it's dominance with respect to uh, foreign exchange transactions. Uh, again, excess U.S. excess U.S. dollars are stored in local central banks as U.S. treasuries, and there's approximately $20 trillion of U.S. treasuries floating across the globe right now. That's part one, foreign exchange currencies. And part two is corporate debt outside of the U.S., uh, the United States, $12 trillion. There's You can't walk away from that without either co uh, without driving up the price of the debt or entering World War III. So more more to read on this, but... I'm super bullish on crypto in general, especially Bitcoin, Ethereum, so on and so forth. But to see it completely replace uh, the, the U.S. financial system, uh, that that's kind of a pipe dream. And, and I've read like the Bitcoin standard and the gold standard and all that, too. So keep that in mind. Moving on. So if we use that as the backdrop of of if we use this idea that the debasement of the US dollar is probably not going to happen in our lifetime, how, how do we like triangulate that against just general market performance? I find LPL Research, lplresearch.com, great, great system for just tracking uh, just market performance across uh, US and global equities. If you don't have time to like monitor market performance, they provide a great summary uh, that we can go through right now. So for the week ending April 21, 2023, we can see, I'm going to zoom in here, that S&P 500 week ending is down about uh, uh, a quarter of a percent. Year to date about, up about 8%. But but the question the question we ask is, is why? Why have we seen, um, I'm personally incredibly bearish on the S&P 500, and I've, and I've wrote articles on this. You can Find it on frontrunnercrypto.com. My prediction for the S&P 500 uh, year-end 2023 is under 4,000. And the reason uh, we're generally seeing... The reason we're seeing a flat week is this never-ending feeling of a recession. So again, a recession is technically two quarters of negative GDP growth, but there are a lot of other ways to quantify the likelihood of a recession. And one article, one one indicator that's really popular is the conference board's leading economic index, right? This is a composition of 10 uh, metrics that are used to quantify the probability of a recession. Uh, these metrics include um, unemployment, inflation, uh, housing, manufacturing orders. There's one metric that's a composition of like eight other metrics. I've I've written about this. You can check it on frontcrypto.com. But the net net is that the conference board leading economic index fell back to levels last seen in November 2020 when the economy was reeling from the pandemic. And I go to Econo Day, which everybody should check out. It's powered by Fidelity, but uh, I'll put it in the show notes for anybody who wants to review it. Econo Day, uh, 
highlights the index of leading economic indicators plunged a further 1.2% in March following a downward revised 0.5% drop in February. So what does that mean? It means that uh, the, the economic indicator index is performing worse than expected. This is a potential leading indicator of a recession, given that declines were widespread in March as they have been over the last six months. The report warns that economic weakness will intensify over the coming months, leading to a U.S. recession starting mid-year this year. Now, we might already be in a recession. Um, we have experienced two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. We saw this at the end of 2022. But I think very simple way of thinking through probabilities of recession, you can just look at like core inflation. You can look at the price of rents. You can look at the price of housing. You can look at unemployment. Unemployment is a really easy way to think through it. Um, Right now, we're hovering around like three, three and a half percent unemployment. Uh, we might get to, I think, if the S, I think if um, if the United States government and Jerome Powell and the committee responsible for setting setting the federal funds rate has its way, we're going to see inflation as high as five percent. If infl, uh, sorry, recession uh, unemployment as high as five percent. If unemployment goes to 5%, that translates into millions of jobs lost. And if we see millions of jobs lost, that is going to be a recession. Why? Again, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. When people lose their jobs, they spend less. When they spend less, companies make less money. When companies make less money, they post downward guidance with respect to earnings growth. When companies post downward guidance with respect to earnings growth, share price goes down. When share price goes down, it triggers a flight to safety. A flight to safety triggers triggers um, investors to buy more U.S. treasuries, and it's just a vicious cycle. My general advice to anyone out there, especially uh individuals who are living in California, perhaps exposed to the tech ecosystem, embrace for a super cold winter. It, it's coming. I mean, sure, the unemployment that we've seen in uh, the layoffs we've seen in tech space are a small microcosm, but given just the broad basket of economic indicators that outline potential recessionary concerns, I'd keep a close eye on unemployment, inflation, core inflation. Um, this is exclusive of rent because that's a lagging indicator. And I would keep your finances in tight order. I would just avoid all consumer debt at this point. If you're, you're going to get hamstrung with, um, with consumer debt and then you get slammed with the job loss, it's going to be a double whammy, guys. The writing's on the wall. Indicators are there. Um, 
I think we're going to be in a recession in the next six months. You can like read contrarian points of views. Goldman Sachs posted an article recently outlining that the probability of recession is like less than 30%. You might think Goldman Sachs might be the invisible hand of the U.S. government. So proceed with caution and make sure your house is in order. So if we if we think that um, we are entering a recession, the next question you might have is, well, how do you trade this? How do you trade this, right? You've heard this. You've heard this saying: um, bulls make money, bears bank money, pigs get slaughtered, right? So, one popular point of view is to like uh, trade the extreme ends of the equity spectrum. If there's a bull market, you could trade short, bet down. If there's a bear market, you could trade long, potentially realizing that we've hit a bottom and trade up. LPL research. Everybody should read this. This is like a, a, we say this out loud, data makes it very clear. Published an article on 421 called No Respect Recovery. And essentially what they did is they took, uh, they looked at the performance of the S&P 500 across the extreme ends of the bull and uh, bear spectrum. And they looked at options. These are position these are future positions right so if again an option is an opportunity but not an obligation to buy some equity at some point in the future if you're super bullish on the S&P 500 and it's like trading at 39 or 4000 you might buy options like that are deep out of the money because you believe that it's going to go to 5000 and you can cover the spread on that right conversely if you're super bearish you could go uh you could buy puts on the S&P 500 and think that, hey, uh, the S&P 500 is going to be a dog. A recession is imminent. I'm going to bet downward on this and try to cover the spread. Even even if you do deep out of the money or like zero day or seven day options, this is super popular during the last bull run. So what happens if you trade? What happens if you actually trade these options deep out of the money? Uh at the opposite ends of the spectrum. What I found super compelling, here we go, let's walk through this, is that um, on a one to three month basis, major peaks in the long position historically produced above average returns that outpaced the returns of major positions during the lows during this time window. When looking out to 12 months, major lows in future positions have historically produced respective average and median returns of 12 and 2.12 percent uh, and 13 percent, outpacing the 12-month returns of major positioning highs. Right. So you read this and you're like, oh, oh, wow, this is great. If the market's a dog right now and I think it's going to go up, I'm going to go long. If the market's a if the market has hit its peak and I think it's going to go down, I'm going to go short. What happens if you do that? Uh, LPL Research uh, created a model that entered long S&P 500 trades when the net futures positions crossed two standard deviations below the mean. This means it's a bear market. And then they entered short S&P trades when the net futures position crossed two standard deviations above the mean this is a, a bull market where we're going to enter a bear position right two standard deviations above and below uh the future position is an indicator that hey we've hit our peak or valley it's time to go long or short what is the result of this so here here, here it is 
the model generated a total return of 87% for an annualized rate of return of 3.2. For comparison, a buy and hold S&P 500 strategy returned 326% during the same period for an annualized return of 6.2%, right? Overall, overall, the model showed positive and absolute returns. The model showed positive absolute returns, but significantly underperformed a simple buy and hold strategy. The underwhelming performance stresses the importance of using the weight of collective evidence for forecasting price trends instead of a single indicator or sentiment gauge. So there's a chart. You can look at this. It shows the S&P 500 with uh, the net future position uh, when your two standard deviations above and below. But the result is this. If you think that you've identified... Um, a top of the market and you're going to enter a short position or if you think you've identified the bottom of the market and you've entered a long position if you were to enter this if you were to try to trade this as measured by two standard deviations above or below what's going to happen is that you're going to ha have according to this model worse performance than if you just bought and sold bought and held the s p 500 so for all the day traders out there, just keep this in mind. Just keep this in mind. I'm not saying don't do it. I think there is there are there's the opportunity to have potentially powerful short-term gains, but in the long run, the data is clear. Most traders who try to trade peaks and valleys get burned. And this is exclusive fees. You're you're not gonna do you're not gonna do well. 26% versus 87%. The data is undeniable. Now The debasement of the U.S. dollar, probably not going to happen. Recession, probably going to happen. Day trading, probably going to lose, right? All right, so now we go into U.S. treasuries. Like, what do we do? We're just going to buy U.S. treasuries? Do we buy the short-dated one that ends in like 30 days? Do we buy the long-dated ones? How do we even think about that? Well, at least in the next couple of months, we have to think about this. We have to view the treasury market through the lens of an upcoming debt ceiling, All right? Every year, the U.S. government gets together and does this horse and pony show where they talk about what is the debt ceiling for the United States government? Are we going to default? It's truly a spectacle of mediocrity, right? To quote LPL, if the debt ceiling isn't resolved in time, the U.S. government would technically default on its contractual obligations. and The Treasury market is starting to price in a chance of a delayed payment. Okay, a chance of a delayed payment. What does that mean? Treasury bills that mature in May are yielding around 1.2% less than T-bills that mature one month later, and a record 1.49% less than T-bills that mature in July. Why? As the Treasury is likely able to make the May payment, investors have bid up the price of these securities seemingly at the expense of the debt that matures around the expected X dates, which is June, July, right? So the net result is that uh, this is so crazy. Investors are demanding more to hold those securities at risk of delayed payment. You can see the chart here. Basically, there's this growing sentiment that the U.S. government is going to default on its debt. These are U.S. treasuries. And if the government technically defaults on uh, 
well, if the government is unable to uh, create a budget that the president will sign off on, this will mean a delayed payment for U.S. Treasuries. So what you're seeing right now is the Treasuries that mature in June or July are commanding a higher premium, a yield, than Treasuries that are expiring or maturing in May. Why? Because there's a perceived notion that the probability of a default is higher in July than it is in May, and investors want to be commensurated uh, accordingly to account for this default. U.S. government defaults on its, uh, if, the, if a budget is not passed and the U.S. government defaults on its treasury payments, again, think about what we started this podcast with. $20 trillion, $20 trillion of foreign exchange denominated in, in U.S. treasuries. If the U.S. government is unable to pass a budget and we default on our treasury obligations, it's not going to be a problem for America. It's going to be a problem uh, for for the world, right? So when you watch TV and you think about, oh God, we're not gonna, the U.S. government's not gonna pass a budget. It's gonna pass a budget because if we don't pass a budget, it's gonna be World War III. So my conclusion is, if you're purchasing U.S. Treasuries like I am, buy the U.S. Treasuries that are maturing post July, which it's April right now. I mean, these are like 90 day treasuries and it will yield an additional one, one and a half percent of risk rate of return. If you don't believe this, then you are implicitly saying that the US government is going to default on its obligations, not pass a budget, which is going to be a catastrophe for the world, not just Americans. And that is not going to happen. The U.S. dollar is not going to experience hyperinflation. We are not going to enter World War III. The global economy will not be denominated in one or another non-U.S. currency. It's just not going to happen, guys. All righty, so let's move on. Let's talk about crypto. There's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of movement in the crypto space lately, and I want to start with the SEC and Gary Gensler. So the very brief speed run on this is that there's been a lot of regulatory action enforced by the uh, potential regulatory enforcement by the SEC and Gary Gensler uh, against the crypto community in that I think Coinbase received the Wells notice, Kraken is leaving, uh, you, Kraken is no longer going to operate its staking service in the United States due to enforcement action by the SEC. I think KuCoin is experiencing regulatory oversight in that, like an attorney general in New York is saying that Ethereum is a security. I think Nexo recently experienced regulatory enforcement. Binance is uh, getting it on the chin from uh, the SEC, there's essentially a lot of, there's this widespread enforcement from the SEC to the crypto ecosystem post FTX collapse, and it's impacting some of the biggest players that we all know, which includes Coinbase, Binance, etc. So this past week, 
uh, Gary Gensler had to testify in front of the Financial Services Committee um, in the United States. And the results are... It's so pathetic. It, uh, you're going to have to listen to this. This is uh, this is trending on crypto Twitter and Reddit. This is Majority Whip Emmer questions the SEC. And you got to keep in mind that when these clowns bring uh bring people to testify in a hearing they're not interested in the truth the republicans the democrats neither of them give a shit about the people they have five minutes where they can try to cram in as many gotchas as they can so that way they can take it back to their uh to the people that are bankrolling their campaign and say look guys we did it and in this case you have to remember both the republicans and the democrats are beholden to the billionaire class goldman sachs jp morgan etc they don't give a shit about the regular people so check this out majority whip emmer questions the sec uh chair gary gensler a couple days ago so the crypto market can come into compliance it's there, rule books that are on the books for years. So we have not finalized any new rule specifically with regard to crypto. We've proposed some things in best execution. We've also... Uh, Sir, reclaiming my time, the answer is zero. And how many enforcement actions has the SEC levied against digital asset companies during your tenure, sir? I think it's probably 40 or 50. The sir. answer, sir, is about 55. My understanding is that the biggest crypto failure in history is probably FTX at $9 billion. Were you the chairman of the SEC when FTX collapsed? Yes. And how many times did you meet with FTX prior to their collapse? I think my public record shows two. You met it with FTX at least twice. And arguably, the second biggest crypto failure in history was Terra Luna. Who was the chairman of the SEC when Terra Luna collapsed, sir? We had brought... Uh, you were, sir, reclaiming my time. You were. There I are five members so on the commission. Do you believe your speeches and interviews are to serve as the official position of the SEC? There, uh, I can only speak for myself when I'm speaking. Again, sir, in a statement on the SEC. You can read the entire, you can listen to the entire thing on YouTube. I'll post a link in the show notes. But like my point is that uh, these government bureaucrats, take individuals, perform hearings, get on the mic for five minutes, and have no interest in the truth. They just go through this gauntlet of these gotcha questions where they have no interest in actually getting to the bottom of this, right? This guy, Emmer, is bought and sold by Goldman Sachs, and I'm not here defending uh, the SHC chair, Gary Gensler. He needs to provide regulatory clarity with respect to what is the security and what is not. But if you actually watch the entire hearing of uh, the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, interview, they're trying to get him to make a determination if Ethereum is a security or not. And there's active there's active enforcement action taking place right now. And anyone with anyone with any common sense knows that these enforcement agencies are not going to take a position on any 
investigation that is in flight. So there's maybe what 1,200 or 1,200 crypto assets that could potentially be classified as a security. To bring this guy Gensler out and like ask him to answer yes or no questions with respect to crypto assets being a security, it's not going to happen, dude. Like these people are better off like looking at our traditional finance ecosystem and asking why is there such an outsized return for the few at the expense of the many, right? Why why is finance for the majority of Americans such a black box? Instead, these morons, these are Republicans and Democrats, get together and try to get these gotcha five-minute YouTube clips trending. It does a disservice for all Americans that we should just categorically reject this for both the Democrats and the Republicans. But if you're on crypto Twitter, if you follow any of the crypto talking heads, you'll see that. The SEC chair, uh, Gensler interview, was trending. It's supposed to be like a win for crypto. It's not a win. What What is the Financial Services Committee going to do with this information? Not a goddamn thing. They're going to do exactly what Goldman Sachs tells them to do. It's quite unfortunate, which is why we should ignore this and look at the actual activity that is taking place uh, within the crypto ecosystem, because that is where we can influence change. I've posted this tweet recently that um, it's around public sale tokens. So let's take a step back. Let's take a step back. Uh, 2017, 2018, year of the ICO. For those who were around back then, you could post a shitcoin on an ICO exchange and like try to get a 1,000x return, but it, it had no economic value. These were all turds going to zero. The ICO wave, this is called initial coin offering, came and went, and it was done. Now in 2022, 2023, we're seeing the proliferation of ICOs come back uh, under this new model that I'm actually a fan of. It's called the fair launch model. And if you look on layer twos like Arbitrum, you'll see decentralized exchanges like Camelot offer fair launch token participation. Okay, so what are we talking about? Ethereum, layer one. On top of Ethereum, we have layer two protocols like Arbitrum, right? Why do we do it? Arbitrum has faster throughput, lower transaction costs. DeFi is happening on Arbitrum. It is uncategorically undeniable, right? If, unless you... I mean, unless you were participating in ETH in like 2017, 2018, you are boxed out of layer one transactions as a byproduct of gas fees. But that's okay. Most of the people are in Arbitrum and there's general consensus that it is the de facto layer two for DeFi. So if we use Arbitrum as, if we believe Arbitrum is the ecosystem for DeFi, well, it only makes sense that the token launches happen on Arbitrum. Where on Arbitrum are the token launches happening? Well, the answer, a popular answer, is Camelot uh, is the Camelot exchange. So Camelot is, uh, I posted this, a tweet thread on this, actually, so you can check it out. 
Camelot is a community uh, decentralized exchange built on Arbitrum, right? Uh, what does that mean? Community decentralized exchange means that they have a public token that's used for governance, and you can use that token Grail to earn yield called XGrail, and then that allows you to participate in a bunch of things. That's not really the point. The point is that Camelot has a, a an app called the Launchpad, and the Launchpad is where uh, DeFi builders can facilitate token launches. So the way it works is you go to Camelot Decentralized Exchange. Uh, you, it's, you actually go to their Discord and you talk to the engineering team and then you say, hey, I want to launch my token on Camelot. All right, they've had seven launches to date. Lex, Sec, Pry, Factor, Trove, Win, NEU. And uh, when you do a token launch on Camelot, the differentiating factor is that it doesn't matter if you are the first person or the 10th person or the 1 millionth person to participate in that token launch. As long as you're participating in the token launch, everyone pays the same price, right? There's no insider trading. There's no SAPs. There's no VC like off-chain investments. Everyone pays the same price. And that's super cool. And I think that's actually the future of crypto. So, uh, as an example, I invested in the NEU token, not financial advice, for sure, do your own research. Uh, as part of the fair launch, public sale, uh, when I participated, the volume was such that the token might have sold for $0.10 cents a token, right? But as the fair launch progressed, as more people got involved, ultimately, the NEU token fair launch sale price finalized at around 65 cents per token so everybody in that neu fair launch paid 65 cents whether they were the first or whether they were the millionth right and that is the fair launch so what happened if you were to participate in these uh in the fair launch token sales on camelot how'd it go you make any money are you a millionaire did you quit your day job? Or are you still working at McDonald's? I went through, did some analyses on the seven uh, token launches that have been performed on Camelot, and here are the results. The average return across seven tokens is negative 5.35%, right? So if you were to put, if you were to take $100, a million dollars, $10 million, $10,000, doesn't matter. If you were to take this pool of money and distribute it equally across all seven tokens, you would have a negative 5.35% return year to date. It's not a banger. Don't quit your day job, right? And so that, like a lot of people do these token launches. They participate in these public sale offerings and the pretense of, Oh God, I'm going to get in early and we're going to make so much money. That's not actually the case. That's not actually the case. So of the seven tokens, four are total dogs. SEC, PRI, FCTR, Trove, all down somewhere between 59% and 74% year to date. That means if you put a dollar in, in one of those four tokens, today it would be worth 25%, right? Now, there are two tokens, Lex and WNR, Winner. I think that's like a GameFi token that posted a positive return of 33 and 64%. But again, ETH posted a year-to-date return of 55%. I don't, think the, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. 
of the seven tokens, only one, only one token in the uh, Camelot uh, Launchpad program really knocked out of the park, and that is NEU Neutral Finance. This is a Delta Neutral GLP vault. So, okay, what, what does that even mean? All right, so GMX, we all know GMX. We all love GMX. GMX is a perpetual um, options uh, protocol built on Arbitrum. What that? What, what is that? It means it's you're trading leverage options without an expiration date. So you can go like 50x long, 50x short on Ethereum or many, many other crypto assets. And um, I'd, I'd proceed with caution on this, but there's no expiry date. You just enter your position and you have to exit it before you hit the liquidation price. If you hit the liquidation price before your strike price is realized, then you lose your principal. Otherwise, um, you can exit it and make money. Okay, GMX works by issuing GMX uh, and GLP tokens. GLP tokens earn uh, token holders 70% of all transactions on GMX, right? So uh, very simple math. Uh, you make a trade on GMX. The transaction costs a dollar. You lose. 70%, 70 cents goes to the GLP token holders. 30% goes to GMX. So the problem with this is that the GLP token has variability with respect to price fluctuations. Enter Neutra. Neutra is a delta neutral GLP vault that attempts to control the price of GLP, right? And the NEU token is the governance token. It also earns yield from the GLP transactions, right? So Ethereum, Arbitrum, GMX. GMX issues GMX GLP tokens. NEU, Neutral Finance, is on top of uh, Arbitrum in that it is a lending, it is a delta neutral vault for the GLP tokens. So you can see there's like this, there's like this hierarchy with respect to um apps that are getting built on Arbitrum, getting built on GMX, using the GLP token, etc. So Neutra, NEU, NEU is up 127% year to date. And the way that Neutra, uh, NEU token is, is actually, the tokenomics of it is that um, if you were to participate in this ICO, if you were to put $100 in, 50% uh, would be issued in NEU. 50% would be issued in escrowed NEU. This is exactly from the GMX playbook. That's unlockable over 12 months. This means that you can't sell your NEU tokens for 12 months after the token sale because it's escrowed. Yes, NEU. So I was thinking, okay, well... Does that mean tokens that have tokenomics with respect to like escrowed or restricted vesting schedules? Is that the path to prosperity? Should I just look at tokens that have this lockup and leave it at that? I actually went through uh, the seven tokens and win, winner, Lex, winner, Lex, and NEU. as well as sect all have something similar to this escrowed model in that uh, there's a lockup period. So you can see escrowed NEU, non-transferable for 12 months, token, win, IV winner, 
non-transferable for 180 days. Lex, escrowed Lex, non-transferable for 12 months. And even uh, sect with VS sect, non-transferable for three months. They did this pro rata, 66% sect, sellable at time of token launch, 33% VE sect uh, with a three-month lockup period. How do these four do? So of the four tokens that have this escrowed lockup period, Three had a positive return, right? That is uh, that is NEU, that is winner, that is Lex. And one was a dog, and that is Sect. Sect had the three-month lockup period. It's down 59% year-to-date. So this made me think, okay, for sure the three tokens that didn't have any escrow tokenomics like really shit the bed with respect to ROI, but it's not appropriate to use just escrowed vesting schedules as as a barometer for measuring potential profitability right the tweet thread kind of closes by saying uh, I wouldn't participate in any token sale under the delusion that public sale participation equals winning. It's not, but it's worth exploring. I'm actually a fan of uh, this public sale construct. I hate the idea that VCs have the opportunity to jump the gun ahead of retail investors via these SAFs. I don't like that. There's preferential pricing available to VCs that aren't available to like public sale participants. So Camelot for sure does a good job in solving for this. But if you're going to participate in these public sale launches, don't think that just because you're early, you're going to be a winner. It's for sure not the case. I would try to avoid any, any, uh, I would actually, well, I would first look at the plat, the protocol and ask yourself, is this make, does it make sense? Am I going to actually use this? And if you believe that to be true, then look at the tokenomics and ask yourself, okay, are these tokenomics actually reflective of an enduring, price such that people are going to be incentivized to hold the token or are they going to dump it once it uh once the public sale is complete and what we've seen at least with these seven tokens is that uh the tokens that have no uh escrowed lockup period for sure shut the bed and are all down 70 percent 59 percent 61 percent 66 percent year to date uh so proceed with caution proceed with caution now Continuing in uh, the the uh, crypto ecosystem, there's been uh, <laughs> also a line to Gary Gensler. There's been like this proliferation of meme coins over the past week. The most popular one is the Pepe coin, P-E-P-E. -E. It went from uh, $500. Um, there was a wallet that had $500 of Pepe coin, and it went to $3.78 million, 7,500 times return in five days. That's freaking amazing. $500 turned into $3.78 in five days. Lou Round did a good job analyzing like what's going on. Like, are these are these uh, wallets somehow connected to the uh, engineering or founding team of Pepe? Oh, and you for sure, you for sure know the answer is yes, dude. So check this out, all right? We've seen the uh, Pepe... Uh, coin surging as a winner in recent meme narrative at the time of the writing pepe had a market cap of this is a fully diluted market cap of 160 million quite impressive for a meme coin so it goes on to say 
the main issue with uh, with the Pepe coin is liquidity. Uh, there isn't enough liquidity. So liquidity is like, can you find a, a seller for your? T uh, can you find a buyer for your seller? So if you have um, one million dollars of Pepe coin, can you find someone to to buy it from you for one million dollars? Right. And what Lou found out is that they analyze. He analyzed the connection between wallets using bubble maps to identify wallet clusters wallet clusters and trying to ascertain uh, how connected these wallet clusters are to the actual root supply of Pepe coins, right? The net result is that the wallets most likely know each other or are the same person. Like, damn, dude. Right. This causes a major risk for the market and holders as these wallets hold a token value superior to all of the on-chain look available liquidity. Again, the mark these wallets hold a token value superior to all of the on-chain available liquidity. This means selling their bags will drain all the liquidity and dump the token by more than 99%. More worrying, five days ago, Pepe had two major clusters linked to 5% of the supply, right? Based on each, based on the current valuation, 5% of the supply is 140 million times 5%, that's 7 million, which is greater than all of the on-chain liquidity. Think about that. These wallet clusters control more Pepe coin than all of the on-chain liquidity available. It means if they were to dump Pepe, the retail bag holders would be left holding the freaking bag, right? I'd be super careful with this. This The suspicious behavior has been confirmed by transaction timing. The wallets have been freshly created and funded for the sole purpose of purchasing Pepe coins a few minutes after the listing. Conclusion, the Pepe coin liquidity compared to its market cap is a major risk for token holders, resulting in a potential market crash if some holders decide to take profits from their position. If you're going to go leverage long on this, be super careful because there's uh, maybe a dozen or so wallets that are controlling a uh, that are controlling a quantity of Pepe coins that's greater than the total market that's greater than the total liqu uh, liquidity supply. And that means in plain English, if they were to dump their coins on the market, it would be death for everyone else. Proceed with caution. Moving on. Coinbase. What I found uh, interesting in this like whole Layer 2 narrative is that um, getting to Layer 2 has been a pain in the ass. I've written quite a bit about this. You have to get to Fiat OnRap. This is Coinbase. This is Binance. Buy some ETH, which is selling USD to buy ETH. That's fee number one. Then you got to move that off of the centralized exchange to your wallet. That's fee number two. And then you have to move that from the layer one, uh, from your layer one wallet to like your layer two wallet on Arbitrum, Optimism, whatever. That's that's fee number three. And then from there, you have to actually execute the transaction or trade. This is GMX. This is sentiment, whatever. That's fee number four. Complete pain. Net net, you spend like maybe ten dollars per one hundred. I don't know what the GUI is on this anymore. It's it's probably higher today. Uh, just getting your money from fiat to layer two, right? Coinbase, Coinbase now offers direct to, uh, direct L two on ramps from fiat. I was playing around with Coinbase a couple of days ago. You can go, 
USDC directly to Optimism, directly to Arbitrum, thereby eliminating three like transaction hurdles. Now you're just paying the transaction denominated in ETH to go from the centralized Coinbase exchange to Arbitrum. But it gets even better. If you were to do the trade denominated in USDC, you wouldn't even, Coinbase will waive the fee. That means going from fiat centralized exchange coinbase to arbitrum or optimism layer two zero fees as long as it's denominated in usdc once you're on the l2 you can trade your usdc for whatever you want but dude this is a game changer again most people are priced out of the market with respect to layer one transactions so all of the DeFi stuff is going to be done on layer two whether it's optimism arbitrum polygon zk evm zk sync one day when it reaches mass adoption the fact that we can go from layer from fiat on ramp like coinbase to arbitrum in one hop with no transactions dude game changer i am super bullish on ethereum for this and uh you should be too because this is layer two is of the future and as we move to this multi-chain ecosystem this is going to be the way to do it now we have to cover uh we have to cover nf nfts i've been i've been like super deep in nfts for a while now the challenge is that uh, purchasing NFTs on uh, layer one are subject to substantial gas fees. Mint dot fund does a pretty has a pretty interesting narrative around this. Um, Mint dot fund that's Mint dot fund. You go to your web browser and do that. They have um, they have uh, NFTs that are. I'm going to show it to you guys actually because I think it's it's worth actually showing for those that are on that are watching um, on uh, the YouTube. Mint.fun has open mints. You can like uh you can go to mint.fun and they have unlimited mints. Uh they have mints that are capped by some quantity. These mints can be free, these mints can be super cheap. But if you're looking for a way to like get into a community-driven uh NFT ecosystem, mint.fun is a pretty cool way of doing that. I posted a tweet thread a couple days ago that outlines some of the more interesting mints that are available on mint.fun uh, and let me go to it right now i can show it to you guys how did it go uh number one nagamoki nagamakis this is one that i saw uh like this is a derivative of the nagimoki nft that i think was like number five by volume on blur or OpenSea a couple weeks ago if you're looking for a fun way to participate in that you could check that out i minted one here there you go um, Snoop Dogg launched a uh, Let Me Hit Something NFT. It's actually a music NFT. Um, it's for like 0.0042 ETH. Rainbow, I, I, this is the most interesting one. Rainbow, which is again the makers of the Rainbow Wallet, uh, dropped the Finilier, Finilier NFT on Mint. And it's a dynamic NFT that goes up. <laughs> it's a picture of a cloud that goes up and goes down with respect to gas prices as denominated in GUI. So if uh, if any of this stuff interests you, I encourage you to check out Mint.Fun. They have this fun drop program that's coming out. It's basically a way to earn points. You mint a fun drop NFT. 
as more mints become available, as more NFTs become available on mint.fun, uh, you mint them and via the fun drop, uh, the fun drop um, program that you're participating in, you're in points and stuff. And it's a pretty interesting way to uh, get community engagement on some like uh, free low cost NFTs. Now, wrapping it all up with two more points in the crypto space. Uh, I'm super bullish on uh, under collateralized lending on, on Ethereum. I've wrote like in depth about this. And I think on the layer two space, under collateralized lending leaders right now is probably sentiment. Okay, so what is under collateralized lending? Under collateralized lending is the context of borrowing more than the collateral you provide. So, for example, I, I, just in TradFi world, you could go to uh, you go to payday lender. Not a good idea. Put down a hundred dollars, get back ten thousand dollars. That's under collateralized lending. You could go buy a house, put down two hundred thousand dollars, get a loan for a million. Uh, that is not under like collateralized lending because the collateral is the the backing is the house so scratch that but um any type of program where you are borrowing more than the collateral provided is under collateralized lending in crypto space historically crypto has been over collateralized think about like maker ave etc and that you would put in one ETH, but you could only borrow like 0.5 ETH of USDC, right? Depending on what the liquidation thresholds are for the protocol you're using. Sentiment changes that in that you, within the within the sentiment ecosystem, you can borrow more than the collateral you provide. You could actually go, uh, I've done it as high as like 5X. You could take, for example, if ETH is trading at $2,000, you deposit one ETH and you could borrow $10,000 of USDC. That sounds good, but uh, you're going to be subject to a really slim liquidation threshold in that if this, if the price of ETH swings like 5% in the wrong direction, meaning ETH goes from like 2000 to 1900, your position is going to be liquidated and you're going to lose uh, some of your principal and be subject to a penalty. That is under collateralized lending and sentiment, which is on Arbitrum as leader in that. Sentiment was hacked uh, about a month ago, and the good news is that all of the deposit, all of the uh, hacked funds were returned. Now, uh, what was hacked was the actual lending pool, not the borrow pool. So, if you provided liquidity to Sentiment, uh, your ETH was at risk, but it was all returned. I did not provide liquidity to Sentiment. I used it as a borrow platform. Once I saw the hack, uh, once the hack was published, I immediately withdrew all of my uh, ETH, closed the loan positions, took it out of sentiment, moved it to another wallet. Uh, money was safe. But the good news is that sentiment recently published a tweet thread that um, all of the funds were recovered. And I'm still bullish on sentiment that the protocol is actually insured. So what I wanted to take a moment to review is just in being incredibly still bullish on under collateralized lending as measured by sentiment, right? Um, 28,000 accounts, 12% increase, 6,300 liquidity providers, 36% increase, $8 million of borrows in March, 30% increase. Oh, that's a 46% increase. Wow, that's amazing. $17 million of deposits. That's a 30% increase. 
the average interest rate again this is the sentiment uses the floating interest rate on usdc usdt it's around 59 uh two-thirds of a percent eth is around half a percent frax is around one-third of a percent this is variable so depending on like the utilization of the lending pool it can go as high as it can go like as high as 80 80 percent but again this is like peak and valley peak and valley it's not gonna it, uh, at the way the lending pools work is that as the uh, lending as the as the incentive to provide liquidity goes up more people put eth into the into the lending pool as the more people put eth into the lending pool the yield goes down as uh, uh because that's how the that that is how the machine works right when the incentive when the incentive to provide eth is high Lots of people put money into the lending pool, thereby driving it down. When the ins when the incentive to provide ETH is low, as measured by yield, people put their people take their ETH out, try to find other sources of yield, and uh, until an equilibrium is found with respect to like the lending rates. Same on the borrows. If the borrow cost gets too high, people take money out. They close their loan positions, move to somewhere else like Ave. Uh, when the cost of borrow is low, people deploy more capital to sentiment uh, because it, it's cheap to do so, right? So if you are bullish on DeFi on Arbitrum, and I am bullish on it, and if you are bullish on under-collateralized lending in the DeFi ecosystem, and I am bullish on it, then you have to check out sentiment. Do your own research. I would not like go balls deep on this and put every, all your cash, all your ETH into it. Put 10% into it, learn the machine, learn how it works, and slowly over time, as you understand the math and economics behind the liquidity pools, behind the borrow rates, and you understand how the actual protocol works, then you put more money into it. But sentiment, for sure. Game changer on Arbitrum Layer 2. And we'll wrap up our, our crypto section by talking about what was the news of the week? withdrawals right withdrawals so as we all know uh, uh staking in ethereum for the past three years was a one-way street in that you could stake your 32 eth but you could not withdraw it well ethereum upgrade complete withdrawals are now enabled what does that actually mean is the yield on ethereum going to go to zero the answer is no coin metrics published a really um compelling article uh, that everybody should read. I posted this on crypto Twitter. It's called Ethereum Validator Estimated Withdrawals. Okay. How much Ethereum is out there? There's around 120 million ETH currently in circulation. How much Ethereum is actually staked? The amount of Ethereum currently staked is around 17 million, so maybe 10% of the total supply. Okay, if 17 million ETH is staked and there's 120 million total ETH in circulation, how many of that how how much of that staked ETH is going to be withdrawn now that withdrawals are enabled and what are the implications of the price of ETH given uh withdrawals can now be performed. Oh, very easy way to quantify this is um understanding what is being withdrawn, right? So again, when you stake ETH, you earn yield. So there are partial withdrawals. This is earning, this is the withdrawal of the yield earned on the 32 ETH. And then there's full withdrawals, which is the yield earned on the 32 ETH 
plus the original principal, which is the 32 ETH, right? Partial ETH plus full partial uh, ETH is, again, just the yield earned, and uh, the principal ETH is the 32, right? So what we're seeing is the majority of ETH that is being withdrawn is the ETH that is earned via the staking. This is the partial ETH, right? We can see that around 1 million ETH has already been withdrawn. We're seeing a projection of 1.2 million ETH remaining of the total 17 million ETH currently staked. That's one, two, two and a half million. That's maybe 10%. So 10% of the total ETH supply is staked. 10% of that is withdrawn. That's 1% of the total ETH supply. This is not going to move the needle on ETH staking on ETH prices at all. I tweeted this a couple months ago. Because again, it's going to be supply and demand. Uh, supply and demand equilibrium. As the price, as fewer... ETH is staked, the yield of staked ETH goes up. Right now, it's around 6 or 7%. As more ETH is staked, the yield of ETH goes down. So there's always going to be this forcing function that will compel ETH holders to stake ETH given that you could earn yield from it. I mean, if uh, imagine if staking yields were like 20%, 30%. You're telling me people wouldn't stake their ETH? Hell yeah, people would, right? So as you think about uh, the implications of withdrawals being enabled, just keep in mind that it's a small percentage of a small percentage. 120 million ETH uh, in supply, 10% of that is staked. 10% of that is being withdrawn. And again, what is being withdrawn? There's partial withdrawals, which is just the um, incremental ETH above and beyond the 32 ETH required. And then there's the full withdrawals, which is the base 32 ETH plus the yield that was earned on top of it. And all of that in the aggregate represents two, two and a half million ETH in total. Now, let's wrap it up with with housing, I I include housing in this dialogue because equities, crypto, housing prices all are kind of interconnected. Uh, housing is for sure a lagging indicator. It's it's a it's the slowest moving asset class relative to equities, crypto, and housing itself. But it's worth understanding because if you believe that crypto is the front runner of like the equities market, then one could make the connection that um, the performance of equities, the performance of crypto may be a potential indicator of the performance of housing. It's a little more complex in that housing has a supply constraint with respect to real property that's available. But it's important to note that uh, you should always be informed of just the housing market in general. And when I say housing market, I'm talking about single family detached homes. I'm talking about the interest rates of a home loan. And I'm talking about um, just the, the inventory of housing that's available. 
So let's start by like uh, looking at the interest rates. Uh, crypto Twitter, uh, fin- fintech Twitter is going crazy right now on interest rates for 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Uh, you can see GR Dector, really popular tweet. The average 30-year mortgage rate hits 6.43% this week. The median home price is $400,000. You need to put down 80 k and pay $2,000 a month before insurance, property taxes, and maintenance can. The American... The average American really afford this. This is a misdirection. Because what's really happening is that people who are buying houses, they're not going to buy it at 6%. Uh, especially for new house build, new house builders are offering credits to buy down the interest rates. So no, you're not really... Whenever you go on Reddit or crypto Twitter or like housing Twitter or any of these like influencers who talk about like interest rates on housing are uh, at record levels on affordability it's technically true but what you're going to see is that uh, people are buying points and for new house builds new home builds uh, the builders are offering point buy downs and what that means is that you buy down the points which is prepaying the interest and that reduces your interest rate from like six and a quarter six and a half to like five so a uh, 30-year fixed-rate mortgage at five on a median home price of $400,000, you're still putting down 80 k but the principal interest is not going to be 2000 It's going to be like $600 a month, right? So keep this all in mind when you're looking at interest rates, when you're thinking about the housing market in general. For sure, be, be aware of the nominal interest rates. Understand that it's at 6 7% right now, but also... Take a moment to, to acknowledge that no one's gonna fi- no one's gonna buy a house at six and a quarter, six and a half. Most people are buying down points, or the builders are offering point buy downs as an incentive to get their house off their books, and that is what's happening in the market today. But when we take that into account, what do we see? Like we see existing home sales are still down. Um, uh, uh, existing home sales. This is again. This is volume, not price. Are down uh, 2.4 percent month over month, and 22 percent uh, year over year. Uh, quoting uh, quoting Econo Day, um, the NAR existing home sale report shows a 2.4 percent decrease in March after downward revisions to 4.55 million units in February. When we look at uh, when we look at the supply of homes available, which I think is probably one of the more important indicators with respect to housing, the supply of home available for sale remains at two point six months worth in March and February, not so much higher than two months in uh, March twenty twenty two. The median price of an existing home is up three point three percent to three hundred twenty five thousand dollars in March, from three hundred sixty three percent in February, although it is down 09 percent from one year ago. Okay, what does all that mean? It means that uh, month over month, housing prices are up. Year over year, housing prices are down. And uh, months of inventory is still at record lows. And uh, I would look at calculated risk. They put together a banger, a banger chart on months of inventory versus relative uh, housing prices. Or pardon me, months of inventory versus housing prices. And what you can see for those who are watching on YouTube is um, it's a scatter plot. X-axis is the change in housing in uh, home prices as measured by the Case-Shiller National Index, and Y-axis is the month of inventory inverted, right? 
So when you think about this, like conceptually, when that price of homes go up, uh, what happens compared to, I mean, you, you can like just, just think through this. I mean, forget the chart, right? You it just think about what happens in like your normal day to day life when you look at like housing prices uh, in the market today. What we're seeing is that um, months of inventory is uh, correlated inversely to the uh, price of a home. What we're looking at here is as housing prices go down. What is it saying? Let's take a look at this. The graph below shows existing home home supply, months of supply inverted from the National Association of Re Realtors, right? Note that months of supply is not seasonally adjusted. The last nine months are in black, showing a possible shift in relationship, and prices are now falling with low levels of inventory. That's crazy, right? So inventory levels are low uh, and prices are low. That's pretty funny. The last seven months appear to be outliers with prices falling, even though months of supply is still somewhat low. Normally, what you expect is when months of supply is low, housing prices go up, right? There's an inverse relationship between um, housing prices and uh, months of supply. But what we're seeing is that uh, even, even with months of supply falling, housing prices are still falling. To me, that's an indicator that housing prices are so unaffordable to the average American that uh, the depth of the decline in home prices is not enough to warrant like buyers to re-enter the market. And what would cause sellers to re-enter the market? I mean, sellers are locked into like two, three percent interest rates. They're not incentivized to like sell unless there's like a death, or something in the family, like they're forced to move. It's not happening because normally what we'd see is um, we'd see like the opposite of this. So I'm like, this is this is I saw this chart and this is not like playing out the way I thought it would be, which is super interesting. Housing prices are going down even though months of supply is, is still low. Wow, what a time to be alive. So if you're a buyer right now, that sucks. But you have to like uh, be prepared to fight the fight on housing prices because we're seeing, like, what is it now, March? This is what, January 2023? January 2023, we see two months of inventory. And we're seeing housing prices go down. That's the x-axis less than 0%. To me, this is an indicator of general unaffordability. So we'll leave it at here, guys. Uh, lots of movement in the equities, crypto, and housing ecosystem. If you like what you heard or you didn't like what you heard, leave a comment. I'm, I'm more than happy to take any feedback. What worked, what didn't work. Go to frontrunnercrypto.com. I have a newsletter there. It's super free. Subscribe, like, etc. Uh, 
follow me on Twitter, Front Run John. Until next time, guys, peace.